He likes me. He really likes me. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com, and here to help me guide you through the news of the week is ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle, Jeremy Wallace, who is still standing after this 2021 legislative session. Yeah, I have no idea what day it is. I don't know my name at this point, <laughs> and I have no more words to type at least, but here it is. I'll give one last burst on the podcast. One thing I know uh, is that uh, at quorumreport.com, we have now taken down the signy die countdown clock, which uh, toward the end of the legislative session, that's probably the most popular thing on our website. It counts down to the second how long uh, the legislators have until they have to leave uh, Austin in the regular session. And at the moment that they take down that clock, I have our technical team take it down. I'll tell you this. Colors look brighter. Cigars taste better. You know, everything is everything is is well with the world. It's all right now. We will get to this uh, historic but temporary win for Democrats. Is that a fair way to to say that? Um, we'll get to that coming up here uh, for sure, because it was very significant uh, what happened at the tail end of the legislative session. Um, but I remember being asked this question years ago, Jeremy, when, when we first started doing the Texas Take. And this is a couple of co-hosts ago. And I'll say the way I say to our producer, Sarah, you're the best of the co-hosts that I've had. Of course. <laughs> it, Sarah. Now, Sarah is the worst producer that we've had. I'm just messing with her. I always say that. She's, she's actually the best. Um, way better than Josh or any of those other people we dealt with. Uh, but this question was asked, when they're not in a legislative session, what will you talk about on a Texas political podcast? <clears throat> and I said, well, I think there will be plenty to talk about. In just the few days since the legislative session ended, mercifully on Monday, we have gone straight into campaigns. Yep. Right? I mean, it is happening. And the reason that I started the show by saying he likes me, he really likes me, I'm almost verbatim saying what Governor Abbott said on Newsmax about the endorsement of Donald Trump. Now, you remember there had been a lot of speculation about who might challenge Governor Abbott for his current office. We have one announced candidate so far. That's businessman Don Huffines from Dallas. Um, And after Abbott touted the endorsement of former President Trump, did you see this? Don Huffines, just a few minutes later, put out a press release that said, I'm the real Donald Trump candidate in the race. And I'm thinking, well, maybe you're you're not uh, since since Trump is with Abbott. Listen to Abbott. um, Just he's exuberant about this endorsement. He's talking to the news anchors there on. I'm putting news in quotes on Newsmax. If you look at everything that he said, it shows how closely we work together, how much he both likes me, but also how much he likes Texas. And as he knows, people in Texas like him a lot. Look at what he was able to do in South Texas. He did something no other Republican running for president ever did with the counties that he got in South Texas. So Hispanics in South Texas, uh, he was a transformational president in, in, in reaching out to and getting the support of Hispanics along the border. And I'll tell you one reason why is because unlike what the Democrats try to sell, Hispanics on the border, they really do want the border secure. But Greg, to, 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 to show you the kind of guy that President Trump is, while I was waiting to come on the air with you, he gave me a call. And he asked how things were going. He said that the endorsement was playing really well across the country. And he was talking about 
rounding up even more support for me. So he's all in 100%. When he gets behind you, nothing can stop it. It seems like he's cribbing from Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who talks all the time about the great relationship he has with former President Trump. You have seen where Patrick will put out uh, press releases or emails to supporters where it's just a picture of Patrick on the phone. Yeah. And he could be talking to anybody. He'll be on the couch in his office talking on the phone, and Patrick will say, I was talking with President Trump, and we were talking about all of the issues important to Texas and America. Now, as if it, uh, let's... Let's go further with this. As if it wasn't enough that Abbott has Trump's endorsement, he also has Fox News Channel's Sean Hannity's endorsement as well. By the way, also endorsed by President Trump for his upcoming re-election campaign. And by the way, Governor, I second that. Uh, if if it if it hurts, you tell me you don't want it. Um, but you've been a great governor Sean, for the state the, of Texas. The, the deal about that, Sean, is we're in a competition here in the United States uh, where governors are trying to get you to come to their states. <laughs> I want you to be a I'm Texas I'm getting out of here. I'm telling Texas you, I'm leaving. I can't take it anymore. Here in the Lone Star State. Got to have the Trump endorsement. Got to have Sean Hannity recruited to move to Texas. It seems like we have had enough uh, conservative hosts move to Texas, but maybe we could use one more. Well, and and, and look at what uh, Abbott's doing. You know, Abbott's never had a serious primary challenger in his political mm-hmm. career. And to see him go right out the box as fast as he can to get – uh, you know, former President Trump and Sean Hannity in his holster, you know, it's like it's kind of, a, you know, it's a smart thing to do. Get there quickly. Make sure there's no room for Don Huffines to even try to play that, those cards. So uh, kind of a smart move on his point, given that he's never had a primary before. Yeah, there's some debate about this in the Republican Party. I had heard some say that what we see right now means we're going to have to hear about this for a full year now, all the way until the next primary election, which is probably going to be delayed. It may not even happen in March because, of course, we have the redistricting process that's probably going to play out late this year and potentially even early into next year based on a few things. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, But to your point, it could be that basically you lock down the Trump endorsement now You get Sean Hannity to say all these nice things about you, and that will help to block out other candidates so that you don't get a crowded field for governor, which you have to believe is what Abbott and his chief political uh, consultant, Dave Carney, are worried about. But let me make another point about it. You saw that land commissioner, George P. Bush, announced for Texas Attorney General this week, and this is no surprise. It's not news. And I hate it, hate it, hate it, and I tweeted this out, and I was was being – I was just sort of kidding – with fellow journalists, if your headline says makes it official, you should rewrite the headline because that's not news. Right? You already knew that that was going to happen. What is newsy about it is just how um, Trump focused it all is with the announcement. So you had Bush announce at a bar in Austin, which I thought was interesting. Why announce in Austin? Why don't you go to one of the suburbs and maybe go to Fort Bend County or go to Williamson County or that, that'd be close, uh, you know, for Bush to, to not have to travel too far. He could be back in his own bed that night, go to college station, go to the Dixie chicken or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's anything other than a bar in downtown Austin on East six or West Sixth street didn't make any sense to me, but at the event, they were passing out some koozies, campaign swag. And I don't know about you, I have in my office uh, just years and years worth of campaign swag, yeah. both sides, Republicans and Democrats. Some of the stuff is uh, just very cool. Other things are pretty funny. Um, and this koozie 
that was being handed out to the folks at, uh, at this bar were eye-catching. Now, on one side of the koozie, it says George P. Bush for Texas Attorney General. Normal stuff. It's got a, it's got a picture of the Texas flag. And that didn't catch my eye at first. Then you flip the koozie over. And on the other side, there's an image of George P. Bush with Donald Trump. Right back to this thing of he likes me. He likes me. He really, really likes me. This is the quote from Donald Trump about George P. Bush that's written on the on the koozie. It says, this is the only Bush that likes me. This is the Bush that got it right. I like him. Close quote. Now, now think about those words and think about who we're talking about. Yes. The, the scion of the Bush family. And then listen to the very first campaign ad. This, I actually got the text message of this, Jeremy. Uh, George P. Bush was sending this out to Republican primary voters. Uh, it was a video that said, hey, it's George P. Bush here. And I want you to know that I'm kicking off my campaign for Texas AG. The liberal mob in Washington, D.C. has made it clear. Once again, Texas is in her crosshairs. I'm George P. Bush, and I'm running for attorney general because I will not sit idly by while the liberal elite and the media undermine our values here in the state of Texas. Like President Trump, I will not sit idly by while our freedoms are under attack. We deserve an attorney general who will make us proud, one who will fight for Texas. I'm George P. Bush. May God bless you. May God bless the United States of America. And may God bless the great state of Texas. In normal conversation, you usually don't hear people say things like sit idly by, and somehow uh, Bush there managed to work it into a 30-second ad twice. He said he will not sit idly by while the liberal mob is uh, you know, attacking Texas and all this. Um, Jeremy, we've been trying to figure out, but we, you and I have talked about this and throughout the chattering class in Austin and elsewhere in Texas, how does somebody whose last name is Bush, is part of the Bush dynasty, run for high office in Texas when Trump is the one who has his grasp on the uh, Republican primary voter. They are in the thrall of former President Trump. And that koozie says everything. Yeah. It says all, I mean, let's paraphrase it. It says every other Bush is wrong. Yeah. Every other Bush. And that, that includes uh, Jeb Bush, who is his father. That includes uh, George W. Bush, his uncle. That includes uh, the late George H. W. Bush, right? Who, who some people, when they saw that koozie, they were saying, uh, I would think that uh, Bush the elder, the, the way elder, would be rolling in his grave overseeing something like that. Yeah. I, How do you thread this needle? Maybe you can't. Maybe you just have to be as blunt as saying, everyone else in my family is wrong about President Trump. I'm the one who is loyal to him. Yeah, and it's crazy, too, because, again, you know, it's it's – Harris County Republicanism, right? You know, Harris County is still the biggest county in Texas. Uh, and, you know, George H.W. Bush uh, and Houston just go hand in hand. You know, it's like and right. so for, you know, George P. to kind of move away from that legacy to grab onto Trump instead uh, is maybe alienating a group of voters who may not like Ken Paxton, right? You know, in Harris County specifically. Again, mm -hmm. the place that has the most potential votes for George P. Bush. And so he's yeah. kind of alienating what I would have thought was his base of support by going against his grandfather and mm -hmm. against the basically the foundation of what today's Republican Party, you know, started at in Texas, right? You know, it's like it's hard to argue that. There, you know, there aren't many people more important to the story than George H. W. Bush for the Republican 
party in Texas uh, over yep. the last 30 to 40 years. And yet here he is, he's moving away from him in the same week in which like he was, you know, having trouble with Houston and Harris County over Hurricane Harvey relief money. He kind of yep. ticked off the whole county twice in one week. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a weird strategy to start off a campaign. I mean, I guess they're making the calculation that that just doesn't matter and that the Bush Republicans just don't matter. And again, this is the challenge of being a guy named Bush running in Texas in the Trump era. How does that work when Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick uh, and others are touting President Trump? Some of them have earned the endorsement. I was talking and I'm reporting here from Houston this morning. Um, I was talking to some Republicans here in Harris County last night about this question. Um, about putting just pushing in all your chips on Trump, everything on Trump. And it's a risk-reward thing in a huge way. I mean, when I say pushing in all your chips, you, all you have to do is ask this question. Well, then what if Trump endorses Paxton? Isn't your campaign over? Yeah. If, 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 you have, if you've made everything about being you know, close to Trump and that you're the person who will carry on the Trump legacy, if you will, in Texas, that you'll fight for the same issues and you'll uh, you know, represent uh, the people who care so much about uh, the things that President Trump was interested in, and then President Trump weighs in on the race and it doesn't go your way, it, you're toast. Yeah, and, and, and let's not forget about January 6th, right? Who was with President Trump the morning of the attack on the Capitol? Oh, right. It was mm-hmm. Ken Paxton. And like, and who was golfing with Trump a few weeks after that, and popping photos? Right. They're golf buddies. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're essentially insurrection buddies from that morning, right? You know, and you know, George P. thinks he's getting the endorsement. It's like yeah. it's kind of hard to see the logic in that for me right now. Yeah, it is interesting though that of the Texas statewide Republican incumbents who have been endorsed by Trump so far, Paxton's not one of them. Yeah. That is interesting. I mean, we'll keep we'll watch that space. We'll see what happens there. I have been told by some that uh, that the former president has been talked to by some folks from Texas, people high up in the Republican Party, who say that on the attorney general's race, you should stay out of that because the AG has so many uh, personal indiscretions that have been reported and has you know potential. Uh, criminal charges that could be forthcoming in addition to the ones that he's already awaiting trial for, uh, for on the state level charges and all of that. So we'll see how it plays out. One other thing to throw into the mix here on Republican campaigns, the Republican Party of Texas chairman, Alan West, just this morning, as we're taping the show on Friday, announced he is resigning from his post Effective July 11th, I believe, was the the date that was given. Correct. Uh, Kat Parks, who is the vice chair of the party, she first tweeted out uh, early today that, and this is not the news I expected before 9 a.m. on Friday after Sine die of the legislature, um, that uh, the vice chair said, uh, Alan West has just resigned, effective at 5 p.m. today. Uh, West folks said that was not correct. He'd be on the job through the beginning of July. Uh, I had uh, tweeted this out that there is no there's no law right now in Texas that says that the chairman has to resign his position to run for something else. There is a however to that. And the however is there was a bill passed with enough support in the Texas legislature to require that the chairman of either political party, Republican or Democratic, if they want to run for something else, they do have to resign. Yes. And that bill is on Governor Abbott's desk. And I never get ahead of the governor on his signing or vetoing of bills because he might find something in that bill that he doesn't like. You never know. But I probably I think he'll probably sign this one. 
So all of a sudden, this kicks off all the speculation. What's West running for? There had been a lot of talk that he would maybe run for governor, maybe run for lieutenant governor against Dan Patrick. You remember, and we had reported about it here on the show, that um, West was really just blistering Dan Patrick during the legislative session about the issue of permitless carry of guns, constitutional carry. West had gone as far as thanking House Democrats for keeping the bill alive after Patrick's uh, Senate, in West's estimation, had, uh, had put poison pills into the bill, some things that grassroots conservatives would not like. It was an interesting moment. You don't see this often, that Patrick's political operation, both his senior advisor, Sherry Sylvester, and his uh, campaign spokesman and, and strategist, uh, Alan Blakemore, both came out swinging against West at that time. Yep. They said he was clueless, didn't know what he was talking about, and the bill was going to pass. And they, and they asked this question at the time, Jeremy. I'll repeat the question now to you. Sherry Sylvester asked, is this guy running for something? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to think of it. Remember, uh, before Alan West you know, decided to run for chairman, he was floating running for other offices. A lot of people kind of forget this. This was like right. almost uh, six months before he jumped into the race. He was asking his followers on Twitter. Because remember, this guy – is a former Tea Party kind of stalwart, former congressman right. in Florida. He has a kind of a following. And so he was quizzing them and asking him, what should I run for? Should I run for Congress against Colin Allred? You know, or should I run for, you know, p- chairman of the party? Or should I run for something else? You know, and he looked at some local races he was considering. Uh, so it's not in- entirely sure where he would go. Certainly, you know, it's like for him to run for a congressional seat, you could see that would give him – an ability to fight Joe Biden and national Democrats, which he loves mm-hmm. doing. From my time covering him in the in Florida, that man loved to fight with you know Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the congresswoman oh, right. from Miami, from Weston mm-hmm. technically. But like they liberal Democrat. Oh, they 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 leader of the Democrats. She he clearly got under her skin, and you know she clearly does not like him. And so, but for him to be back on that stage, I can imagine he would enjoy that to a degree. But who knows what he wants to run for? We know he wants to run for something. Um, And there was a he's he's been speaking to Republican clubs for months now, and one of Mm -hmm. them he had uh, I want to say it was in Hood County. Uh, He had said that you know somebody asked him if he was going to run for governor, and he. Said, I don't know, you know, what God's path will be for me, you know. And he talked <laughs> about like he's gonna like right. just like he did in two thousand four before you know he ultimately ended up running for Congress in the first time. He's gonna listen to God and make his decisions afterwards. So right, he, he was also at this event, uh, I believe in Dallas, where they had uh, a lot of the QAnon uh, faith, correct, if you will. Uh, Louis Gomert, the congressman from East Texas, was there, and and, and Gomert. Uh, Gomert's staff had told a reporter from Tyler that he was not at that event, but there was a picture of Gomert on stage talking to the crowd. Yeah. Uh, West was at that event as well, and uh, General Michael Flynn, formerly of the Trump administration and the Trump, uh, you know, in the Trump orbit, had endorsed West for governor at that event. After Flynn had talked about the idea that there maybe should be a military um, coup, basically in the yeah. United States, so they could they could reinstall Trump as president at any moment. So we'll, we'll see well, and, and, where this goes. And one more thing, like, like, you know, look at what Alan West's 11 months as chairman have been. This, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. He sacked the former chairman. He uh, held a, you know, was part of a rally outside the governor's mansion of his own party, mind you, a governor of his own party. He called yep. the house speaker a traitor. Uh, he got into that war wars with Lieutenant Governor Patrick, like you mentioned. Yep. And mm-hmm. like, 
that's in 11 months. As I, and I got to tell you, from my time- <laughs> Did you in, mention suing? Did you mention suing the Republican government? Oh, yeah. He government? sued the Republican government. Yeah. And, and I got to mm-hmm. tell you, you know, from my time covering him in Florida, this is so on his brand. <laughs> this right. is what he does. He sets fires and he goes, you know, he has no prisoners he takes at all. He just goes after everybody. So but None of this shocked you. So uh, we will see what happens next with West. The speculation game is on. Um, midnight- on Sunday into Monday morning, uh, a historic moment yep. uh, in Texas, a, a brief victory perhaps for Texas Democrats as they did something that is not the norm. It is described as the nuclear option in killing legislation, and I don't want to downplay that at all. I saw some folks uh, saying, and particularly Republicans, but there were some Democrats too saying, well, you know, this just means they'll come back in a special session. And they'll try to pass an even stricter version of the target of their nuclear bomb. It's, it's like a, it's a political nuclear bombing to, to take down a bill that way, to do what you call a quorum break. There, there are these folks saying if there's a special session, there'll be a stricter version of the bill. I don't necessarily agree with that, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, but here's what happened. Um, it was 8, night, uh, eight 9, 10 o'clock uh, in the Texas House on Sunday in that time frame. Uh, that all this went down, where Democrats just discreetly left the floor of the Texas House. I, I saw on national news, they always want to, you know, they got to uh, juice it up, hype it up, and say a dramatic walkout. Part of why this worked is that it wasn't a dramatic walkout. They didn't, like, in mass, just leave all at once. It was the opposite. Uh, and I'll, I'll describe it this way. So I was hungry. It was around 8 o'clock, I think. And I was looking for food. Sometimes in the Capitol, you have to forage for food. So I did find some chicken strips in an office. And I was told by a Republican staffer that they had seen a Democratic member of the House leave the floor. And that Democratic member said that they left with their key. When they said they left with their key, I immediately knew what they meant. Now, the listener may not. So let me help you. On the desk of each Texas House member, there's a voting machine where they vote yes or no, or present not voting, they push a button on that machine to vote on the bills. And if a member's not there, if one of the representatives is not there, the other members can vote for them. It's usually their desk mate. They sit two by two uh, in the Texas House. And so, you know, people, I've seen news stories about this where they try to make a big deal about that, and it's not that big a deal. The members know how the other person feels about it, and they can actually change their vote after the fact if, if 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 it was wrong. Um, but if they take the key out of the machine, it won't work. So no one can vote for them, right? That, that's the point. And when the staffer told me that some, that one of the representatives, uh, one of the Democrats from Dallas had left with their key, I knew something was up. And I said, do you think anybody else is doing that? And um, they said, well, maybe. And another staffer then said, I think the Democrats are leaving. There's like 20, 20 of them are gone. Okay, so I was looking at a monitor of the Texas House floor and looking at the desks, and there were a lot of members who were missing. They had disappeared. And at that point, I think there were 30 or 35 of them. It's still not enough to deny quorum, which Democrats now have the votes to do, which they didn't always, right? And we'll get into that. Um, But at some point, it became pretty clear they were not going to have the votes to continue to do business. And in some ways, the speaker moved that along. You may have seen that 
There was a motion to excuse the absence of one of the members, Joe Moody from El Paso. And this is a routine thing that happens all the time in the house is someone has important business in their district or whatever, uh, for whatever reason, they can't be there. So they will excuse their absence. It's kind of like when you were in school, you could either have an excused absence or an unexcused absence, but the house has to approve your absence and it's a majority vote. Uh, and, and you have to have enough people there to do the vote. You have to have a quorum. And so one member offered a motion to excuse the absence of this Democratic member who was not on the floor, along with just about every other Democratic member. And the motion failed due to lack of quorum, which means the House can't do business. So the nuclear option had been invoked, right? And the Democrats were gone. And in that moment, I walked the halls of the Capitol. I was trying to figure out where these people went. Where, you know, uh, did they leave the building? Are they in their offices? And I can tell you right now, Jeremy, it was a mix. There were some members in the Democratic caucus who were in their offices with the lights off and the door locked because the Speaker of the House can send DPS state troopers to go get them and bring them back. So there were members nervous about that. Other members were just walking around downtown. In downtown Austin, I know that one member in particular was just walking down Congress Avenue. And part of the thought process had been that there were only about 90 minutes left before the deadline to pass Senate Bill 7, the big elections bill, the omnibus elections bill. And with 90 minutes left before the midnight deadline, if they scattered, even if the speaker had wanted to be heavy handed and send the DPS to go get them, it would be very difficult to do that. Right. So that's what was happening. Um, When they didn't have a quorum, I walked back up to the house and I walked to the gallery and I heard the motion from, I believe, from Chairman Guerin from Fort Worth, Republican from Fort Worth. And they made the motion to stand adjourned until 10 o'clock the next morning. And so it was done. Senate Bill 7 was dead. So what happens? I start to get all these text messages from Democrats that we are over at this church in East Austin. And this was about 11 o'clock, 11.30 that night. And um, I thought, you know, this is all of the drama of a quorum break with none of the inconvenience because the church was five minutes away, as opposed to what happened almost 20 years ago when the Democrats went all the way to Ardmore, Oklahoma, which I would have thought they should have gone to Windstar or, you know, somewhere they could have some fun, (laughs) but they didn't. Anyway, I have talked with Democrats about that, by the way, who said... um, you know, if we had gone to the casino, we would have lost some people. So anyway, they, they were staying at a Holiday Inn back then in 2003. Um, at that church, San Antonio Representative Trey Martinez Fisher spoke at a late night press conference. And he said, Senate Bill 7, if it had passed, would infringe on the voting rights of people all over Texas, particularly people in the minority. SB 7 would deny that right to many law-abiding Texans simply because there are those who only wish to play gotcha politics legislation. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat who also ran for U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz, said the state-level Democrats need backup from national Democrats in Washington. Those Texas House Democrats that stopped this voter suppression bill, even though they are in a fairly deep minority here in Texas, I hope that Senate Democrats in the United States Senate, who are in a majority, are, are watching their example. These guys in Texas were able to stop a bad bill. We need the Senate Democrats, the United States Senate, to pass a good one. They have the numbers to do it. When Democrats stick together, stand up, and fight, 
we win. And I hope those Senate Democrats will do that while they have the chance. Now, uh, O'Rourke is talking about uh, voting rights legislation that is on deck in D.C. and it has gotten hung up in the United States Senate. And this is just a reality of the legislative process. You can have a majority of votes for something and the thing still not pass, uh, just like in the Texas Senate. Right. And, and there used to be uh, stricter rules for that in the Texas Senate. But uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has reduced the voting strength of minorities in the Texas Senate to be able to pass certain things. And I was also reminded, Jeremy, uh, and uh, and had reported on this uh, earlier in the week. Do you remember that when voter ID was passed back in 2011, um, the rules were changed in the Texas Senate? It, it used to be that two thirds of senators had to agree to move forward on a bill before it could even be debated. Well, that was eventually changed in 2015. And then again this year because of Lieutenant Governor Patrick's insistence that a supermajority should just be defined by how many Republicans there are. But in 2011, and this is a little under the radar, but at Quorum Report, we live in the weeds. In 2011, they kept the two-thirds rule in place with one exception. And that one exception was for the voter ID law because it had failed in previous legislative sessions, and this was something that Republicans really wanted to do. Um, Republican State Representative Travis Clardy says the Democratic walkout will not help them in the long run. I don't think so. I don't think so. I, 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 in some respects, they, they postpone the inevitable. Uh, passage of time may not work uh, to their advantage. In fact, I, I think that it probably won't. Um, and, and again, I, I think that it I think the people expect us when we're elected to represent them to come and show up on the job and do the job. And, and I know my district, they expect me to come fight for the best interest of, of my house district, uh, knowing that I'm not always going to win. Now, I win most of the time, but I'm not always going to win. But they expect me to be here on the job and fight for them. That's what we were elected to do. The Republicans are engaged now in a blame game about why this legislation did not pass. And I'll get to that in just a second. But Jeremy, I want to just pause for a second. And talk about this. And, and I think it it's not just a legislative procedure thing, because I think in a lot of the media news stories about this, it's been portrayed that way, that the House and Senate were trying to hash out their differences and it took a long time. That's true. But I would say that that is the embodiment of the uh, political environment, the challenge that Republicans are in, because they feel under pressure to somehow avenge President Trump and his failure to win re-election last year. Trump has been running around saying that the election was stolen. How many times do we have to cover this? It's one of the reasons that national politics bores me to death, because everything is about that still. And we're in June of 2021. And at the national level, there's still all this discussion about President Trump somehow being cheated out of the election. Well, the reason that the Texas Senate and the Texas House started out in such different places on this, and you tell me what you think, they're in different places because they feel like there is this um, mandate that they do something about election integrity, but no one can say for sure what that means. I mentioned voter ID in 2011. That was a very, I mean, it was controversial, but that was a very specific proposal, right? They were going to require that you show a, vote, a photo ID before you could vote. Democrats at the time said that will disenfranchise certain people. And there is still, there, you know, there are still some things about that law that are not equitable, like the fact that you can use your uh, hunting and fishing license in Texas to vote, but you can't use a student ID. Democrats talk about that. Now, why do you think that is? Of course, because more Republicans would be the ones with the hunting and fishing licenses, except probably in South Texas. Um, so, but some changes have been made to that. Point being, 
it was a very specific proposal. With this, there wasn't a specific proposal, and so they didn't even really know what they were supposed to be doing. And then we end up on Friday, Thursday and Friday, going into the last 72 hours of the legislative session with a final version of this thing that included provisions that had never been reviewed by the Texas House and Texas Senate previously, the session, including a provision to allow judges to overturn elections with no evidence of fraud. That should freak out Republicans, and privately they would tell you that it did. I could come up with a list of probably 12 races around the state, Texas House races last year, where Democrats would be well within their rights to go to the courthouse and challenge the election result if that law had been in place. And then the other thing that was in that law that was so offensive to Democrats in this proposed law had to do with what they call the souls to the polls events on Sundays, Jeremy, which Republicans tried to explain that over the weekend and the last couple of days as some sort of a typo. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things you know, I wrote a story earlier this week about how the walkout that the Democrats ended up having, was, you know, the seeds of that were planted uh, weeks earlier, if not and certainly a few days earlier, too, based on exactly what you're talking about. It's like the, the House and the Senate versions of election integrity, as, as they've been calling it, were vastly different from the very start. Uh, the House version and the Senate version were never really close. They end up going to conference committee, you know, and for you know a week and a half, they're working on something, but not sharing it with all the members of the conference committee, which is angering Democrats even more so. And then at the last minute, they throw in all those extra pieces that had never been debated. They were supposedly working with Democrats, and a lot of Democrats were kind of resigned to, look, this is going to be a terrible bill. We're going to hate it, and we're just going to vote against it, and we're going to move on. Until that souls of the polls thing got dropped in there. Granted, look, they were upset about the overturning elections thing too, obviously. But that souls mm-hmm. of the polls thing, particularly for the the black members of mm-hmm. the Texas legislature and the Hispanic members, was so offensive uh, to them. And you could see it. You know, I, I spent I did an all nighter with the Texas Senate on oh, yeah. Saturday night into Sunday morning and yeah. watching it. And I'm not sure if I've seen. Uh, Royce West, the state senator from Dallas, more intensely debating an issue than I heard him that night. You could hear he was dumbfounded at them putting that souls to the polls piece in that Mm -hmm. would have moved uh, voting on Sunday to start only after 1 p.m., which to him, you know, as he told me, uh, you know, later on the next day, he said that showed intent. They were like intent on going after mm-hmm. my community. And, right. and the, you heard similar to, things from Boris Miles, mm-hmm. uh, the state yeah. senator from Houston. I, and I had a lengthy interview with Ron Reynolds, uh, mm-hmm. representative of, uh, from Houston. And he, he and I were talking about it. And he said, like, there was no walkout planned until after what they saw happen in the Senate and that souls of the polls piece you know, come about. They had been a little chatter about it, but it hadn't ga- gathered much steam. Uh, and a lot of the Democrats weren't really in favor of doing the walkouts, particularly, you know, white Democrats. But it was Reynolds and crew who said, why aren't we talking about walking out more? Because they were, they said it was their communities that were on the front line. And one of the things, you know, people should look at uh, Kayla Harris, one of my coworkers, just wrote a good piece on how it was the black and Hispanic caucuses that really led this and changed the entire story. You know, the Democrats were going to accept this bill 
until folks like Ron Reynolds uh, and uh, Trey Martinez Fisher started pushing. You know, all of them. And they all deserve a lot of credit for this because they kind of, you know, grabbed the Democratic leadership and said, don't be afraid. We've got to do Even if it's going to be a temporary victory, they said, mm -hmm. we have to, you know, stand up for this. And look at what's happened. You saw it in Beto's comments and a lot of the other national response. There's a national, yeah. like, you know, movement here or, or uh, excitement that, you know, mm -hmm. the Texas Democrats have generate and what was the last time you could say that texas democrats have generated a national excitement you know for 2013 being able to throw In 2003 yeah it's been a long you time know, it, it it happens maybe about once a day exactly and they anymore. pulled something off so even if there is this bill that comes back later uh, it's like they've already <clears> had <throat> their victory i would disagree with clarity on this where it's just like the democrats already have some new muscle into this uh into this whole fight uh, because of how the and, and I I state this pretty clearly in the story mm -hmm. how much Republicans and their dithering on this issue and not coming to terms with what they wanted weeks earlier, if they had done that sooner, none of this would have happened. But it was their disagreement that opened the door to all mm -hmm. of these problems that they're now facing and having to call a special election. Yeah, it's a dynamic situation. As I said, the Republicans could not decide what yep. new voter integrity uh, laws in Texas should look like. Uh, let's say, for example, that the agreed to solution, as far as Republicans were concerned, let's say that the solution was cutting down on polling places in minority areas. That would be highly controversial, but I bet you the governor would have signed that already yeah. because it would have been something that would be straightforward. They would have just done it and then fought it out in court. Um, or you could take any of the provisions that were in that bill and say, okay, the, the Republicans are going to pass this this narrowly focused thing, like the voter ID. I mean, I thought that the perfect perfect uh, example um, of one of these contradictory statements was uh, the lieutenant governor in his press conference. Remember when he was shouting at all of us in the media and you know, lecturing Mr. American Airlines because American Airlines had come out against the bill. Um, Patrick had said, in Texas, election after election, we have increased voter turnout while keeping the ballot secure. It begs the question, why are you doing anything then? Yeah. What is the point? And, and, and the Republicans couldn't figure out what the point was. So they kind of slapdash. It's like you turn in your homework uh, you know, with, with, little time, with little time to go uh, and maybe even late <laughs> because it didn't work out. Um, and you know, they had this, uh, this hodgepodge of proposals that were all in there. And again, a lot of proposals that the house and Senate had not even, uh, reviewed up until that point. Let me, let me illustrate this further. Senator Brian Hughes, who carried this in the Senate was on CNN with Brianna Keeler. And I'm a little surprised that he continues to go on uh, the air with Brianna Keeler because she's not having it whenever he <laughs> whenever he says whenever he says this is not part of the national discussion about elections uh, or or about 2020. Keeler wanted to know why is this even an issue in the first place. The truth is, in the way that this bill is written, you're going to have people of color, especially, who are going to not be voting. You're going to see a decrease. And I just ask, why is that when you only have 43 pending voter fraud charges in Texas, only one is from 2020? You've previously misquoted that as, I think, about 400. It's really 43. Only one is from 2020. And there were 16 minor prosecutions 
for 2020. It was just people putting down addresses that weren't theirs. There are hundreds of open cases in Texas. As you know, the courts have been largely closed. No, there's closed not. Because there's not. There's not. There's the not. Investigations there's investigations are what they are. Let me say there's this not hundreds. about what Texas has You may be doing. talking about complaints, which anyone can file. There are not hundreds yeah. of open cases. There are 43 yeah. pending voter fraud charges in Texas. This is according to your Republican attorney general's office. There are not hundreds, sir. I'm speaking about the investigations. Courts are pretty slow now because of COVID-19. When someone makes a complaint, we have to investigate it. We take those seriously, no matter what they're about. Hughes has this good old boy way of talking uh, about all of these issues. And on the Senate floor, and you watched him for hours the other day, Jeremy, as maybe the only uh, journalist who was uh, physically present in the Senate. There might have been uh, maybe one more. I'm not even sure. No, just, uh, but when, just one. Just, okay. <laughs> it was just me and the DPS troopers, 18 oh, DPS okay. troopers and me in the Senate gallery sound, for most of that evening. <laughs> sounds like a fair ratio. Yes, yes. They, you were, you were they kept me very there. safe that night. <laughs> um, well, th- this, uh, this style that Hughes has, I would argue that when Texas Monthly does their best and worst list of the legislators, that, that Hughes should be on both lists, <laughs> yeah. which has never happened before. He's passed all this major legislation, but he is the abs- – and I am uh, just going to say I am tired of everyone giving so much credit to Senator Hughes for being so smooth and so nice and everybody likes him even though he's carrying these horrible bills in the estimation of a lot of people at some point. If you are the guy carrying um, what amounts to five pounds, I'll say it this way, 10 pounds of trash in a five-pound bag, if you're always the guy carrying that bill, but you're so nice when you're talking about it, um, at some point you're not nice anymore. If, if a nice guy in nice shoes and a nice suit sold you a car that suddenly performed that way, you would be researching the state's lemon laws to figure out you know, what you're going to do about it. Now, the blame game is on. Yep. Lieutenant Governor Patrick is angry with Speaker Phelan. He blames Phelan for the way it went down. Now, the night that the Democrats walked out, Patrick said he did not blame the Democrats. He said that they, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that they employed a legislative tactic that is legitimate based on the fact that they were up against the midnight deadline, that they indeed could walk out. Um, on the Chad Hasty show in Lubbock on KFYO, Patrick blamed this almost exclusively on the way the speaker handled everything. A lot of Senate bills that were priority bills for our conservative base died in the House, and they died because of mismanagement of time and calendar, and I might say maybe because the speaker didn't want the bills to come to the floor for a vote. I know that's a strong statement, but the facts speak for themselves. We had 28 priorities on our list. We had a few others for redistricting, but we can't take those up until the fall. So out of our 28 or 29, we passed 27 back in March and April. These bills, um, Chad, have been sitting over in the House forever, including Senate Bill 7 that they walked out on the other night. We passed, they had that bill on April 12th. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. When you have that bill since April 12th and you don't bring it up until four hours left, on the last night of session on May 30th. What does that tell you? That tells you that you slow played that bill to put it in a position where they could walk out. Somewhere, Joe Strauss is smiling. 
The former Speaker of the House, uh, Strauss, was always often blamed by Patrick for the failure of quote-unquote conservative legislation. Patrick would say that uh, Strauss was either obstructionist or was slow-walking things, and that's why they didn't have more conservative successes before. That, of course, was uh, simultaneously happening with Patrick and Abbott and others saying that it's the most conservative session ever. Here's a hint for everybody. They say that every session. Yes, of course. All right. It's always the Super Bowl of sessions, and conservatism reigns. Now, Phelan is not having it. He said that when the bill came back from the Senate after the all-night debate that you listened to, after it came back, Phelan said there were points of order all over it. In other words, the Democrats would have been able to potentially take it down on procedural grounds if it had made its way to the floor of the House on Sunday night. But despite all of that, Phelan still says that he has a decent relationship with Patrick. Listen to this. Um, he was talking to Christian Flores at uh, CBS Austin. What's your relationship like right now with Lieutenant Governor Patrick? Obviously, I know this weekend there looked like there was some friction. Also, early on, with the, you guys did differ on the repricing uh, issue after the winter storms. What's your relationship like with the Lieutenant Governor? We have, we have a good relationship. Um, he has a job to do. I have a job to do. The House is entirely different than the Senate. We have different rules, different personalities. Uh, I've worked in both. I appreciate both, but the roles are different. Um, he's, he's a very intelligent man. He's a very skilled politician. I respect him and what he does on a daily basis. Uh, but the House is just a different, we had just have a different set of rules. And I, I don't have the ability here in the House, and nor should I or would I, change the rules at the last minute um, to try to get a piece of legislation. That's, not, that's just not how it works on the House floor. So you just got to be mindful of that. It's just two different, two different bodies, um, both very important, very important roles, but just different styles and different jobs to do. And I respect, I respect Dan Patrick. I respect the governor. Uh, we all, again, we all just have our jobs to do, and we go out there and do them. I'm pretty sure he respects the governor. What's up, Jeremy? Yeah, uh, uh, I want to expound on what he just said there because, like, mm-hmm. that's one thing we didn't hit in all this. You know, uh, originally, you know, you know, when this election bill was going to the Senate, they were going to debate this on Sunday. At least that's what mm-hmm. a lot of people thought, and because you had to have twenty-four hours from the time the final bill was, you know, laid on the senator's desk until they actually had a vote. Well, mm-hmm. at the last minute. Uh, so the Democrats were planning a big uh, filibuster there. You know, think remember back in the old days when it Wendy Davis been. did. Mm-hmm. You know, the Senate Democrats were convinced. You know, on Sunday they were going to do a filibuster and they were going to be the heroes. They were going to kill this bill. But mm-hmm. you know, Patrick and his crew clearly knew <clears throat> that would that would be a risk. So what they did is they voted to change the rules that night. That you well, did. they didn't ain't slow down. They did not change the rules. They voted to suspend the twenty four hour layout rule. Yeah, which exactly. They can, I'm going to I'm going to make this point. Because you're making, you're talking about something very important. Changing the rules in the Senate, which I mentioned about voter ID, is exactly what they did in 2011. Patrick changed the rules in the first session that he was lieutenant governor, and in this session even further, to mean that only Republicans had to be in favor of something to be able to suspend the rule that you're talking about. Correct. So the Democrats were left completely without any power on that deal. Yeah, exactly. And so, and a lot of Democrats are saying that was the first nuclear option that happened. It's like Republicans yeah. used their nuclear option there, and that's when they all started going, wait a minute, they're doing that so they can jam the souls of the polls thing down on us. And so you can see kind of how a lot of Democrats are saying, hey, if Patrick and Phelan want to point to anybody who's, who started this thing, it's them. Go look in the mirror. Yeah. If y'all hadn't put that in the bill, 
we may be talking about an entirely different end to this session mm -hmm. right now and how, you know, Governor Abbott is now planning a press conference to sign that bill. You know, it's like, but they just couldn't help themselves. They had to take a bill that Democrats already despised and they just mm -hmm. put a little extra anger <laughs> into yeah. that recipe. You know, and when I talked to one of the Democrats uh, who was fleeing the floor that night, um, who had gone to their office and uh, had locked the door, uh, they said, look, throughout the session, we have felt sort of um, abused by the Republican majority uh, that, uh, you know, basically Republicans had said to them over and over again, if you'll just behave right, if you'll, ju you know, if you just do right, as they say in Texas, if you just do right, act, behave th this way, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll allow you to do some of the things that you want to do as far as policy around here. And when it got to Sunday night, when that bill Senate Bill 7, the elections bill, was going to be on the floor. This Democrat said it was just one step too far. Yep. It's too much. We have already seen so many things get shoved through here, and they listed some of them off. Yep. Constitutional carry. Um, you know, that they had uh, the back and forth uh, about the abortion bill, yep. the heartbeat bill. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in just a second, but I also want to say this because I saw – some folks saying that if the Republican majority can't just go on and do whatever they want to do, then elections don't matter. The truth is the exact opposite. So in 2003, and you get asked a lot, I'm sure, about the last time there was a quorum break in Texas. was It was almost 20 years ago. Sometimes, and even journalists will make this mistake, they'll think that the last time that there was a quorum break was in the last redistricting cycle. It wasn't. It was two redistricting cycles. Yep. 2003. Why was it in 2003? Because there had been a redistricting in 2001 that was approved when Democrats were in the majority in the Texas House. Then what happened? Republicans won the majority in 2002. And so in the 2003 session, the former majority leader in the U.S. House, Tom DeLay, from Sugarland, Texas, was very interested in creating what they called at the time a permanent majority for Republicans in the state. And they did what they called a, a mid-decade redistricting. Yep. They had just done one two years before. Delay and then Speaker Craddock, Tom Craddock in the Texas House, they offered up maps that would wipe out the Democrats and any chance that they would have to take the seats back uh, in the next election. Uh, and they did that. Yep. And at that time, the Democrats fought them uh, in part by fleeing, by leaving like they did on Sunday night. But in uh, 2003, they went all the way to, to Oklahoma as we mentioned, and uh, not as reported on as much, but the Senate Democrats also left that year and went to um, New Mexico. They went to Albuquerque. Fun fact, do you remember which Democratic senator broke ranks and came back to do the deal with Republicans? No. John Whitmer. Oh, right? wow. So there's a lot of history here. <laughs> a lot of history here. Now, the deal about every election mattering... By the time you got to 2011 and the next redistricting after 2003, what happened in the elections in the meantime? Well, in 2008, President Obama was elected. In 2010, we had the Tea Party wave and Republicans were winning races all yep. over the country, including races that a lot of people, did, including some Republicans, thought they could not win. Um, and at one point, you had a, a, basically a tie in the Texas House a couple of years before. And Republicans increased their numbers to 101 members. Yep. 
Democrats at that time, in 2011, could not break quorum because they didn't have enough people to do it, right? Um, if the Democrats had all gone to Las Vegas and were playing the slots, it wouldn't matter. The Republicans could still vote on things in the Texas House yep. in 2011. In the meantime, from 2011 to 2021, over the next decade, Democrats made up a lot of ground in Texas. It's, it's part of what we have talked about over and over again with the new battlegrounds of the suburbs in Fort Bend County, Collin County, Denton County, Williamson County, and on down the line. And they were picking up seats fairly steadily. They were beating Republicans in certain areas. And then you get the wave election yep. in 2018 when Democrats pick up 12 new Texas House seats, two new Texas Senate seats, and two congressional seats in Houston and Dallas flipped from Republican to Democratic at the coattails of Beto O'Rourke and all of that. With those elections, Democrats were now empowered to do what they did on Sunday. So when people say the elections don't matter if the majority party can't do it, no, it's, it's that every single election matters. And that's something to keep it, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you have to understand that if Republicans don't get to do redistricting this year, uh, of the legislative seats because, hey, if they could leave on Sunday night, then well, who's to say the Democrats have to come back for a special session? I have heard that uh, serious players in the Republican Party understand, and they've been saying this for months, that if they want to do redistricting this year, they have to have some buy-in from Democrats. And what we saw on Sunday illustrates why. Yep. Because Democrats actually have to come to Austin for the special session. So when we hear these arguments that the bill necessarily has to be worse for Democrats, that uh, there will just be a new monster that will have even more in it than Senate Bill 7 had, it's not true. It could be, but it's not true. In 2013, Wendy Davis filibustered the abortion bill, the omnibus abortion bill, in a special session. Um, it failed in that special session. Rick Perry called them right back for another special session, and the bill that was eventually passed was identical to the one that she had filibustered. Yep. All right. So it didn't get worse or better, or it stayed the same. Um, in a lot of ways, also, and this is sort of unsaid by the Republicans, and I don't know that Lieutenant Governor Patrick would agree with this. I think there's a lot of Republicans, even some in the Senate, but probably more in the House would agree with this. It's probably the best thing that could have happened. Democrats get a little victory, as you said, a temporary victory. It is a victory for them. Again, don't want to, I shouldn't say little. They got a victory. Um, Republicans didn't have to vote on a bill that is loaded up with things that we don't really all understand exactly how that's going to work, and I don't think they did either. Uh, and some of them, we do know how they would work, and they would absolutely do what Patrick and Phelan have said over and over again that they're not trying to do, which is suppress the vote. There's a bunch in that bill that would absolutely do that. When people say it's not voter suppression, but it would make it hard to vote or harder to vote, what do you mean? If it makes it harder to vote, it's hard to say it's not suppression. Um, so Republicans didn't have to take a bad vote, I would say that. And the governor is not calling the lawmakers back immediately. Now, in the meantime, he's having what I would describe as maybe a silly sort of scuffle back and forth by suggesting that he's going to veto funding for the legislature. Isn't this what Alan West and everybody on the right has been complaining about with Greg Abbott, that he thinks he's some kind of a monarch, some kind of a king, that he can just do whatever he wants, that he can cancel out one of the branches of government? As my publisher, Harvey Kronberg, wrote at QuorumReport.com this week, if he could cancel out the legislative branch, why can't he cancel out the judicial branch as well? Yeah. 
that would make it a lot easier for him. He can just do whatever he wants to do. There was also a question raised about whether that would be uh, considered bribery under the state's legislative bribery law, uh, because if you're promising people that they will get, even if it's a small amount, $600 a month is what legislators make uh, from their state uh, uh, pay uh, paycheck, if they get real dollars in exchange for the way they behave in the legislature, then that's why you would raise the question, is that legis legislative bribery? We'll see if anything comes out of that. Um, all these issues. I mentioned Democrats feeling like they've been pushed to the brink. And how many times have we covered this, Jeremy, where it always seems that there's a, a lot of talk of Republican overreach, but then in the next election, it doesn't matter. The Republicans win anyway. You, you have to look for nuance and you have to look for things you haven't seen before. And I don't remember seeing anything like this. Lake Highlands, you know where that is? Yep. Up in uh, Dallas? There was a very interesting speech given by a valedictorian there at the graduation ceremony at Lake Highlands uh, High School. Uh, Paxton Smith is the young woman's name. And you know when they do their valedictorian speech, the valedictory, uh, valedictory speech, they um, have to pre-clear their script with the, uh, with the administration. And this young woman had turned in her speech um, and then ripped it up and wanted to talk about something else. She um, wanted to talk about the Texas legislature, which I hear a lot of young people who are in high school talk about national politics now. Um, there were a lot of much younger uh, folks who were talking about Bernie Sanders for president last year, for example. A lot of uh, millennials who are very excited. So a lot of these folks who are voting in their very, you know, very first election, 18 and 19-year-olds. Uh, I don't hear them talk, and, and maybe you have, Jeremy. I don't hear these kids talk about the Texas legislature very yeah. much. Yeah, they're not talking about quorums in the Texas House typically. <laughs> no. So this young woman, Paxton Smith, she wanted to talk about the abortion bill that was passed uh, and signed by Governor Abbott. Uh, the, what, what has been called the fetal heartbeat bill. Uh, listen, and, and she admits on stage that she told the administration she was going to talk about one thing, and now she's there to talk about this instead. As we leave high school, we need to make our voices heard. Today I was going to talk about TV and media and content because it's something that's very important to me. However, under, however, under light of recent events, it feels wrong to talk about anything but what is currently affecting me and millions of other women in the state. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger. A decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. Not the kind of thing you're used to hearing at a high school graduation, right? Um, Smith said she talked about it in that speech, though, mainly because it's the one time as a young woman who has achieved a lot. She's the valedictorian in a big high school, right? I mean, she had to, there was a lot of competition for her to be the one who was there. 
Um, she said that this is the one time that she would be guaranteed to have so many people from the community listening to her voice. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights. A war on the rights of your mothers. A war on the rights of your sisters. A war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you. You could tell in watching her that she's um, uh, probably a very sweet person, the way she had organized her papers in front of her. And she, before she started to talk about all that, sort of nervously goes, um, okay, here, here we go. I'm really going to do this. Um, not the kind of thing you normally hear at a graduation. This got attention, of course, uh, from uh, all over the country. Uh, a powerful speech, but it's not, it's not dissimilar from some of the other comments that we've heard uh, from some Democratic lawmakers, Democratic activists, talking about things that are happening in their communities, about the way that Republicans are governing and what kind of backlash there might be. Jeremy. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting when you know hearing her speech made me think of uh, State Senator Boris Miles of Houston. You know when when the you know. Republicans were pushing that election bill or trying to push that election bill through uh, the Texas Senate. Uh, he kind of expressed it, I thought, you know, perfectly where he said he actually turned to them and said, I want to thank you sincerely because what you are doing here tonight is kicking a bear. And that bear is that valedictorian. That is like people who you're not used to seeing in the political process being so angered by things that are happening in the Republican-controlled legislature that it's going to create an energy that helps Democrats chip further away. And it was just, you know, to me, it's like, you know, I think Miles, you know, he's he's kind of had a similar speech twice now where he's talked about this, but I th thought it was kind of maybe the, the speech of the of of the session it's just kind of reminding republicans yeah enjoy how far you're going here but know there can be consequences to this and try to learn from the lessons here and i think you know he, he kind of illustrated exactly what we saw with that speech and what we're going to hear a lot about in these communities mm -hmm. they're going to go back to these you know particularly black and hispanic communities and talk to them about how the republicans tried to take your right to vote away and it yep. wasn't but for an extreme stance by Democrats that stop that, and we need more of you to be involved. It's like that's going to be a much better calling card to those folks out there than anything the Democrats could have done on their own. And so this, this is going to be really interesting to see how this dynamic kind of carries over and what kind of energy maybe the Republicans have given Democrats, particularly in the black and Hispanic communities, which mm -hmm. I think I would argue has really changed the politics of Texas over the last four to six years. Yeah, there's always risk involved in all these decisions, and make no mistake, it was a calculated decision by Republicans to go uh, further right in this legislative session when they did not do that in the last legislative session uh, and in their campaigns in 2020. Remember, uh, we kept hearing from Democrats who were saying during the campaign in their mail pieces and television advertisements, etc., that the Republicans were right-wing lunatics, right? I mean, they were making that case all the time. Um, Republicans were saying that they, as the incumbent majority party, that they were bipartisan problem solvers yep. that wanted to work with Democrats. Um, and that has not been what has played out during this legislative session at all. I think it's a good place to leave it for people to think about, Jeremy. We have a programming note here. We will be off next week. 
we are going to merciful, mercifully give ourselves a week to to think about everything that has happened, yeah. to ruminate a little bit. Oh, who am I kidding? We're just going to take the week off. Um, if, if you like the show, and, and we'll be back the, the week after that. Don't worry. Let not your heart be troubled. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be back the week after that. Make a note. Um, if you like the show, you know you do. You should subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the best rating that you can and leave a review. We would love that. You should subscribe to quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you right back here in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.